right, well, good evening, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. The title of the sermon is The Binding of Isaac, part 1. And once you're at chapter 22, verse 1, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And here is what the Word of God says. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split, the wood, he split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father... And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. And Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we come to you tonight. We thank you um, for you allowing us to assemble, to gather so we could sing to you. Uh, it was beautiful singing, Lord, and, uh, and we assemble together so that we could pray together as we are now and so that we could read and, and study your word together. And I pray that you would be with me as I preach your word, God, that you know um, I have not had the normal amount of time I normally would to prep for this, so I just pray that you would make up for any lack on my part. God, don't, you know, <laughs> remove me as much as possible so that I can't mess this up. And God, in everything, just may you be glorified. May your people learn to trust you more and, and have a faith like the faith we're going to see in our text tonight. And um, that, yeah, we would just be edified by your word, convicted, encouraged, and, and all of that. And we pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they'll be saved. And God, we just pray all these things to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. As Christians, at least if you've been a Christian for a while, I think that you know that God sends things our way in order to test us. And these tests are meant to show us where we are at in terms of our faith. They're meant to grow us. Whenever a test comes, it always feels huge. But as we grow in our faith, those earlier tests actually seem pretty small in comparison to whatever we're facing in the present. And if you walk with God long enough, eventually you end up with the test of all tests, I don't know if each of us get one or if we get more than one, but there's going to be a test at some point that comes that really proves whether or not you have given your whole life over to God. 
We have brothers and sisters, for example, suffering all over the world, and they seal their testimony for Jesus with their death. I mean, that's passing the test. That shows their faith. See, we never know what our biggest test will be, but faith in God through Christ is how we will overcome and how we will grow. Well, our text this evening is all about this. Truly, without exaggeration, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. And I know it sounds like I say that every week, but this one really is. It sets the stage for the rest of redemptive history. Yet even as it does that, though, it records the biggest test imaginable in the life of a single believer, in the life of the patriarch Abraham. For him, what we read about, this was the test of all tests. Now, the Jewish people have a name for this text because just like for us, for them, it is probably one of the most famous and foundational texts of our entire religion. They call it the Akedah, which means the binding. And that's why I titled the sermon, The Binding of Isaac, because that's what it's about. Truly, this is one of the most significant events in the entire Bible. So we need to understand it. And that's why it's going to take me two sermons. It's only 19 verses, but it is so big theologically that I just, I have to take it in two. Now, the point, though, in both sermons is the same, and the point of the text is this. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys, and it is blessed by God. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys and is blessed by God. Real simple point. Now, how do I know that? Well, our text, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19, will demonstrate this truth in a sequence of three parts. In fact, it's real easy to follow. The three parts are this. God tests Abraham, Abraham obeys God, and God blesses Abraham. So God tests Abraham, Abraham obeys God, and God blesses Abraham. Pretty simple, and I'm not going to tell you at what point we're going to stop tonight. That way you're left guessing. But it will be two sermons, so we're not going to get through this all. Now, as we come to our text this evening, we are at the apex episode or event of Abraham's life. Everything has been building to this point, kind of. And the reason I say kind of is because if you didn't already know what this text was about, meaning if this was the first time you ever opened a Bible and you're reading through Genesis in order, I doubt you would naturally expect what we just read. You just wouldn't. When I became a Christian at 17 years old and I was given a Bible after I got baptized, I started in Genesis and I was reading straight through and this caught me off guard. I'm like, what? It just, it wasn't expected. I mean, Like the rest of us, I've been seeing what we've been seeing since chapter 12. God calls this old man, a childless childless 75-year-old Abraham. He commands him to leave his native country and to go to the land of promise. God says, I will make a, a nation out of you, and I will bless you. And through you, I'll bless all the nations of the world. And so Abraham listens, and Abraham obeys. That's great. But as we've been reading... We have seen that Abraham has had many bumps over the years, has he not? He lied when he was scared. He failed to lead his wife to believe in the promise. And so with her, they brought a third woman into their marriage, which definitely complicated things. He multiple times failed to protect his wife from the men that he feared. In the course of those 25 years where he was waiting for God to fulfill the promise, There are a lot of times where Abraham doubted God. When God says in chapter 15, you will have a son, he's like, no, a slave will be my heir. God's like, no, you'll have a son. Then he has an illegitimate son, and then God comes in chapter 17 and says, I'm going to give you the real son, and Abraham's like, no, let it be my illegitimate son, right? God's like, no, it's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. So the point is, at the end of these 25 years of waiting where Abraham's going up and down, God fulfills the promise, and he allows Abraham and Sarah to have little baby Isaac. Now, in that same 25 years of waiting, I I want to be fair, it wasn't all bad. Abraham had great moments as well. He claimed the land of God, showing faith by putting an altar in the north and the center and the south, saying that, hey, what the pagans think is theirs, this actually belongs to God. He also repented at those altars when he failed morally. He boldly destroyed the armies of mighty kings to save his nephew. He trusted that God would do right when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so again, with Abraham, we have seen it's an up and down pattern for those 25 years where his faith is growing, but he still stumbles hard sometimes. That sounds like us, right? 
Well, same thing with him. And through this all, God is growing him into the faithful man he has called him to be. Well, once Isaac was born, that's it. The promise was fulfilled. And when God fulfills this promise, this will take Abraham's faith to the next level. And I'll explain why a little later. All that growth for the 25 years, it paid off. And it paid off just in time. Why? Because the hardest of all the tests of Abraham's life were actually still ahead of him. Once he gets the promise, it's not like life gets easier. The tests actually get harder. They get harder. And he both passed. Remember, he passed and failed the lesser tests of the 25 years of waiting. But what comes after Isaac's birth is an escalation that would be really hard for us to imagine. The first test was Abraham had to disown his first son, Ishmael, since the promise is through Isaac. Ishmael was a threat to Isaac. Chapter 21 showed us that. But Abraham loved both of his sons. You can understand where he's coming from. Do I really have to send him away? Yet God told him, you have to give up Ishmael. And so in a sense, Abraham already sacrificed a son because Isaac has to be the one who receives the promises. So Abraham sends Ishmael and he sends the mother away. He obeys God. He trusts God that God will take care of them because God said he would take care of them. He promised that Ishmael would become a mighty nation. He's going to be fine. So Abraham at this point, well, God's come through on everything. So I trust he'll come through on this. So he obeys. Well, now that Abraham is at this point where he trusts God will follow through, he's willing to do what most of us would find impossible for us to do. But that's what growing faith leads to. Well, with that test with Ishmael, as big as it was, it shouldn't be surprising to us. Why? Well, Genesis has been focusing on Isaac. It's been telling us God means to fulfill this all through Isaac. Anything that's a threat to Isaac, God's going to get out of the way. So again, expect it. But when we get to chapter 22, well, this is rather unexpected. As a 17-year-old, I did not see this coming. The last 10 chapters did nothing but swell around the promised son. And now he's here. Then God gives a command that drops the jaw. It's utterly unpredictable. It's as if God says it like this. Here's my paraphrase of it. God says, Abraham, you know that promised child which I had you wait for so long? You know the one which, for which I made you give up the other son? You know the one that I've banked your entire future on? And Abraham's like, yeah, thank you so much, God. Thank you for Isaac. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for fulfilling your promise. Thank you for securing my future through Isaac. And then God says, yes, you're welcome. I need you to kill Isaac. I need you to slaughter your son, the promised one. That is unexpected, okay? Now, again, we're all, we've all heard it a million times, so it loses that effect on us. But I just want you to think about that. If you were Abraham, how unexpected this was. And so as a reader that reads it for the first time, it's like, what? Wait, huh? It can't be. And of course, it doesn't take long for us to get to the end of the episode. It's only 19 verses. And, and we realize this was just a test. But Abraham did not know that. He didn't know it was a test. And so we have to ask, why did God test Abraham like this? Well, it's because he is using Abraham in this event to teach us a boatload of stuff that sets up the rest of the Bible. And a lot of that's going to be revealed in the next sermon. So I'm going to leave you in suspense. But as God is setting all that stuff up, he's also showing us what I said the point of the text is. That, that the faith that saves is the faith that obeys, and that's the faith that's blessed by God. And so we're going to see that with Abraham. There's so much we're going to see. So let's get into the text. I mentioned it, it's given to us in, in three-part uh, three sequence. First is God giving Abraham the test. Look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 begins by saying, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Now, there's a few things we need to notice. The first thing is the words after these things. That's how it starts off. That shows us that this is a unit because if you look ahead to verse 20, look at the first words of verse 20. It also says after these things. So that is an inclusio. I know I throw that word around a lot, but that's Moses bracketing this event off saying, read these 19 verses together. 
Also, after these things means after these things. <laughs> after what things? The stuff of the previous chapter where he sends Ishmael away. Okay, now we know this is some time after that. We don't know how long it is after chapter 21, but there's some speculation that is fair, right? If Isaac was two or three in the last chapter because he was weaned, then I think we could assume that 10 to 15 years has passed, maybe even more. Because we're going to see later in the text that Isaac is carrying a substantial amount of wood. You know, you're not going to have a five-year-old, all right, son, carry all this wood. All right, dad. No, that's just, that's not how it works. He's at least a teenager, maybe even a later teenager. Now, the next thing we should notice is one of the most important details. It says, quote, God tested Abraham, end quote. So that lets you know this is only a test. And it is very important to keep that in mind. All throughout the rest of the Bible, God forbids human sacrifice. In the prophet Jeremiah, God makes it clear that people sacrificing their kids never even entered into God's mind or his heart. It's pure evil. And yet right here, it looks like God is demanding that very thing from Abraham. Well, Moses is letting you know before the conversation even starts between God and Abraham, he's letting you know this is a test. God is not actually intending on Abraham carrying this out. Moses knows that verse 2 is going to shock the reader. So he wants them to know something that Abraham did not have the luxury of knowing. This is a test. Isaac is going to be fine. If Abraham knew that, then it wouldn't be a really good test. Okay, So that's why Abraham doesn't know, but we get to know. Now, the Hebrew goes out of its way to emphasize that this is, in fact, a test. In biblical Hebrew, sentences are arranged differently than they are in English. In English, we put the words in the following order. We go subject, verb, object. So subject, God, verb, tested, object, Abraham, right? Pretty simple. In biblical Hebrew, they actually put the verb first. It would say, tested God, Abraham. Now, when they hear that, they hear it like we would hear God tested Abraham, okay? But if they want to emphasize that God is the one doing the test, then they're actually going to put it in our order. They'll actually put God, the subject, at the front of the sentence. And so it would, it would literally say God tested Abraham, but that's not how they would hear it. They would hear it like this. God himself, it was God. By the way, did I tell you it was God? You know, he's the one that tested Abraham. It's emphasizing that God is the tester. That lets us know this was not Satan tricking Abraham uh, and then that God comes at the 11th hour to stop the trick. A lot of people throughout history have tried to say that because they just couldn't wrap their heads around God giving this command. But if you understand that this was a test, only a test, God did not mean for uh, Abraham to, to do this. So again, God is in control of the whole thing. It is his will and his purpose that will be accomplished here. So now that Moses tells us it's a test, he moves into the episode. It begins by God calling Abraham's name. He says, Abraham. And Abraham, who has heard God speak at various times, and for the last 40 years, he responds, as prophets faithfully do, all future prophets will. He says, here I am, Hanani in the Hebrew. Now, I suspect Abraham was not expecting what God was about to say. But in verse 2, here's where we see the test. It says this. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Wow, what a test. And there's so much I need to point out here. First, God commands Abraham to go. That's, that's the command, go. And the way he commands it is exactly like the first time he ever spoke to Abraham. Back in chapter 12, verse 1, God says, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. Right here, he says, Go, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and go to the mountains I will tell you about, or I will show you. Second thing I want you to notice is there's a threefold move from general to specific in each case. In chapter 12, verse 1, God says, leave your land, your relatives, he progresses to the relatives, and then he finishes your father's house. Land general, relatives more specific, your father's house really specific. Well, he does the same thing in chapter 22, verse 2 with Isaac. He begins by saying, take your son, very general. Then he progresses, your only beloved son, very specific. And then he finishes super specific, Isaac. 
Abraham, and in the Hebrew, that's the order of how it goes. See, Abraham, we know he had another son, Ishmael. That's why it moves from general to specific. That way you know for sure. Take your son, your only beloved son, Isaac. Now, in the Hebrew, it's actually stated in a way where each progression is stamped in the listener's mind. And I'm not going to bog you down. I was actually going to read a little bit of Hebrew, but I already know the sermon's going to be long. So just know this. In the Hebrew, there's a particular, what they call particle, called et, that is before each object, all three of those objects, which is meant for the listener in Hebrew to stop at each one so that they could see the progression. That God is making it clear, I'm asking you to give up something extremely precious to you. And so that lets you know that God knows exactly what he's asking Abraham to do. The promised one that you waited for so long, you take him to this mountain I'm going to show you, and you're going to, I need you to sacrifice him. Now, the Hebrew also uses another word that lets you know that God is sensitive to what he's asking. It's the word nah, nah, not like our nah, man, but just nah in Hebrew means please or I beg of you. And that's fascinating because this is what people say to God when we request him. God, nah, please, I beg you. God doesn't use this word when he talks to humans except for five times. Here and four other times. And if you look at all five times where God says, please, I beg of you to a human, all five times, he is asking them to do something that is staggering. It is always when God asks somebody to do something that defies rational explanation, defies understanding. Meaning God is aware of the magnitude of this test. He's aware that this is going to rock Abraham's mind to the core. He acknowledges that this defies his understanding, and this is a very painful thing that he's asking. So tenderly, he's like, Abraham, here I am. Please take your son, your only beloved son, Isaac. Go to the mountain I'm going to show you and make him a whole burnt offering. It's just very interesting. I love how God will will at times condescend himself to in the way that we need him to. It's just, it it staggers my mind. Now, the reason God says please is specifically because, I think, because of the nature of the sacrifice. He says, make him a burnt offering. Now, this is the Hebrew word olah, which is a whole burnt offering. In the Hebrew, a whole burnt offering means you, you kill the creature with your knife and then set him on fire and burn him up until nothing's left. That is what God says, I want you to do to Isaac. He was telling Abraham, this is what you need to do. Now, when you compare this to chapter 12, verse 1, that threefold movement, and then you understand that Moses is showing us in chapter 12, verse 1, you have Abraham's first test. Leave your past behind and go to the land I will show you. Now, because it mirrors it grammatically, chapter 22, it's telling us now we're seeing Abraham's final test. So his first test in chapter 12 is then bracketed by his final test in chapter 22. The first test called Abraham to walk away from his past. This final test, Abraham's being asked to sacrifice his future. I mean, think about that. He's being asked to sacrifice his future. Everything in this test is being put in the hands of the Lord. And the fact that Abraham will be willing to do this tells you a lot about his faith at this point. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that as we move on. But if you think about it, just even right now, I'll say this. Abraham must believe that God has the power to keep the promise that Isaac will be made into a nation. He has to believe that. Otherwise, what we see makes no sense. He has to believe God could do this even if Abraham kills him and burns his body up. And so, yeah, we will come back to that. Now, a final detail worth noting in the test is that God tells him to go to the land of Moriah, where God will tell him about a certain mountain. If you were to do a word search in your Bible, you will find this word one more time. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, the very place where God commands them to build the temple. Exact same spot. And I'm going to tell you some stuff about Moriah that might blow the mind in the next sermon. Stuff we learned when we were in Israel. But there's a reason God is picking this exact place. It's just fascinating. But what that lets you know is happening here is this is forecasting stuff that's going to play out throughout the whole Bible. It's forecasting something about Israel's future. Okay? So up to this point, we have seen that this is God's test. Abraham has never been tested like this before. So the question is, what will he do? 
Well, we see the answers in verses three. We see the answer in verses three through ten. We see that Abraham obeys. So let's look at verse three. It shows us that he immediately obeys. It says, So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set it out to go to the place God had told him about. Now, the details here show no hesitation on Abraham's part. When it says he got up early, that indicates immediate obedience. Meaning the first thing the next day, Abraham is already obeying this command. It is the same thing when God told him to send Ishmael away. It says early in the morning. So that time he also did it first thing next day. He's willing to give up both sons first thing next day after the command is made. That shows you he is at a point in his life where he trusts God so much that his obedience is immediate. He is not dragging his feet. When you drag your feet to obey, you're not being faithful. Okay, He is not dragging his feet. He didn't try to rationalize disobedience, something that I think most of us would have done in this situation. He doesn't do that. Now, the text tells us he saddled the donkey and took the two servants as well as Isaac. He even prepared the wood ahead of time, which is kind of unusual. Usually you prepare the wood once you're there. He chopped it up and prepared it ahead of time, uh, split it specifically for the burnt offering. Now, this word, burnt offering, as I already told you what it is, I also want to mention this. This is only the second time this word has appeared in the Bible. The first time was when Noah came off the ark in Genesis chapter 8. So think about that. God establishes a new creation through the flood, and Noah inaugurates that with a burnt offering. And now it comes up again. God's command for a burnt offering is going to be connected to what happened with Noah, and is going to be connected to something that happens later. But you're going to have to wait till the next one. I know I'm throwing all these things out there just to mess with you. We got plenty to talk about tonight, but this stuff will come back up. Just know that these are all connected. The Holy Spirit, which makes sense, he's omniscient, all-powerful. The Holy Spirit is the most wonderful author, how he ties everything together from book to book in the Bible. But anyhow, verse 4, Moses continues. He writes this. He says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, there are three things I want us to pay attention to in this little verse four. First, God had already at this point told Abraham which mountain it was, because it says he looks up and he sees it. So God must have said that one. And when you understand what Moriah means, it's definitely what happened. God is pointing at the exact mountain. So Abraham looks up and he sees it. Now, the second thing it tells us is it happened on the third day. And the third thing we're going to see in this is it says it happened on the third day. You might say it's the same thing. Well, I'm going to emphasize third day for two different reasons. So second, right? Third day, right? Think about that for a second. There has been no dialogue at all since they set out. Three days of silence. And the silence will not be broken until verse 5. But I want you to imagine this. You're Abraham. You know what you're about to do. You're going to sacrifice your beloved son. And you have three days to dwell on it. Three days is a lot of time to second guess this and turn back, don't you think? Three days would seem like an eternity. I would be willing to bet that dozens of times each day, the thought and temptation came to his mind. And I say all that to let you know that the distance to Mount Moriah, this is part of the test. From Beersheba to Mount Moriah is 58 miles. And so think about it. To get there by the third day, they're pressing about 25 miles a day. That's pretty impressive. But that's, that, that's obedience. They're pushing 25 miles a day, and this has got to be on Abraham's mind. Now, given that Abraham has not said anything in this three days so far, implies that he is considering Isaac dead already. Second, the command came, not even talking to him. He's considering him dead already. In Abraham's mind, his boy is, is dead. He's not enjoying these last days with him. A lot of times people will be like, well, let's make these three days count. Abraham's not even talking to him. Remember, Abraham doesn't know how this is going to end. We do. When God spares Isaac, it's like Abraham got his dead son back. And that happens when? On the third day. Why, what do you think this is painting a picture of? There you go. That's right. Christ, who actually was sacrificed, and yet he was resurrected on the third day. Now, the third thing to notice about this verse is, again, the words third day. And what do I mean by that? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit didn't only inspire Genesis. He inspired the whole Bible. And so 
This, this most significant part of Abraham's test happens on the third day. So we need to ask ourselves, okay, there's one supreme author of Scripture. Are there other places in the Bible where the third day is mentioned, where the third day is significant? Because if so, we're supposed to put it all together. And there are other places. In the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 16, the nation of Israel meets with the Lord for the first time. On the third day, it tells us specifically God makes the covenant with them and gives them the Ten Commandments on the third day. Joshua chapter 1 verse 11 tells us that Joshua and all of Israel crossed into the promised land, crossed the Jordan River on the third day. And as you continue through the rest of the Old Testament, you see other examples. We see in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5, that God healed the righteous king Hezekiah from a terminal illness. So it means he's good as dead. God healed him and he worshiped God when he got healed. And it tells us it was on the third day. We see that Jonah was good as dead in the belly of a fish under the earth. And when is he delivered from the belly of that fish? The third day. Queen Esther, when faced with the fact that Israel is going to be exterminated, she asked that the people of Israel pray and fast because on the third day, she would approach and make intercession for the lives of her people. So let me summarize. The beloved son of Abraham, Isaac, was offered up, and we'll see later that a substitute is provided for him when? On the third day. The covenant with Israel is made on the third day. People crossed into the promised land on the third day. The king of Israel received back his life from the dead on the third day, because it was a terminal illness. And intercession was made for the whole nation to save them on the third day. And you could add to this Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, where it says Israel would be judged by God and as if they're dead for two days and they'd be raised up on the third day. I mean, we keep seeing this theme again and again and again. So I want you to think about how it all points to Jesus. He was the beloved son of God. Just like Isaac is the beloved son of Abraham, Jesus is the beloved son of God raised on the third day. He is the one that brings us into the eternal promised land of the new creation. Think about it. He rose from the dead on the first of the week. And now we worship on the first of the week because it, and it, the new creation's been inaugurated. And all points to it. When did it come? The third day. The third day. Jesus, as the king of Israel, because he's the true king of Israel, he came back to life on the third day. Just like Hezekiah was healed from terminal illness on the third day. Jesus, as the one that stands in the place of Israel, as Hosea 6.2 said, Jesus was judged and died two days dead. But on the third day, he was raised. Everything, it all points to him. And Jesus ultimately is the one by which intercession for his people comes. And it was completed when on the third day. Though he died for our trespasses, he was raised for our what? Justification. And when was he raised? Third day. This all points to him. And the reason why I point this all out is the next time you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, which tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, this is what Paul means. Okay, he's not pointing to a specific passage. There's not a single prophecy that says he shall be raised on the third day. And Paul didn't say he was raised according to a scripture. He says the scriptures, meaning all of it. He's telling you that Jesus raising on the third day was in accordance with the whole thing. So that should then cause you to go back and do what we just did. Look at all the third day statements, put them together. Look at these major third day events. And all you see again and again is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It keeps bringing us back to him. Those things are the types. He's the anti-type. Those things are the shadows. He is the substance. Now, I doubt you were expecting that much from just verse 4, but that's why it's important we stop and slow down sometimes to see what the text is truly telling us. But now I want us to move to verse 5. Moses writes this. He says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Now, this is where the three days of silence is finally broken. Tells the servants, me and the boy, we're going to head to this special place that God showed us. We're going to worship God there. But notice how it ends. He says, then we'll come back to you. Did you catch that? He didn't say, I'll come back to you. 
He said, we'll come back to you. We will come back to you. Apparently, Abraham has the expectation that Isaac is coming back with him. So what does that tell you? Is Abraham lying to them or is it something else? Well, rather than keep you in suspense, let's just look at what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 gives you the answer. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God able to, to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. I mean, think about what that says. There's two things it's telling us. First, it makes it clear that Isaac is a type of Christ because Abraham, figuratively speaking, receives his son back from the dead on the third day. So this backs up all the stuff I said a few minutes ago. See, I wasn't making it up. But the second thing, the second thing this tells us is that Abraham was convinced that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. He didn't know this was a test. So he's going to go through with it. But he's convinced, it says, that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. There is no indication in Genesis that Abraham planned to do anything other than obey God's command. But at the same time, Abraham expected that after he obeyed the command to kill and burn his son, he expected that both he and his son would go back and meet those servants and they would all go home together. So... If you put those two conflicting facts side by side, because they are conflicting, I'm going to kill my son, but he's coming home with me. Okay, those are two conflicting thoughts, but when you put them side by side, there's only one possibility that could stand in the middle of them. The only way Abraham would plan to kill Isaac, but also believe on that same day he and Isaac were going home, is if in between those two events, God raises Isaac back to, death, back to life. He believed it. And Hebrews tells us he believes it. But if you just stop and think about the text, it's obvious. The author of Hebrews isn't making this stuff up. It's clear. It's clear. He believed this. What that means is that Abraham had such a faith in the promises of God that he is convinced that not even death could stand in the way of those promises. He's like, there's nothing I could do that could cause this promise not to happen. And I look at that and I just think, man, Abraham has come such a a long way. This is the guy who lied to save his own skin when he was afraid people would kill him because of his wife's beauty. God had promised great things to him even then, but that promise did not get Abraham to act faithfully. But now he's a man at a different level. And that should be hopeful to you because if you're thinking like, man, I'm not there yet. Well, there was a time he wasn't there yet either. But we keep walking the right way. We could be people on another level as well. His faith is on a whole other level. He is so convinced at this point that God will keep his promises, that he is willing to obey the command to kill his son. Why? Because God made it clear. He said that the promises will come to Abraham only through Isaac. God said, Isaac will inherit the land. God said, it's through Isaac that your descendants will be named. And so if Abraham killed Isaac and Isaac remained dead, then none of those promises could be true. Yet, God has already kept amazing promises. The one, the, once God, think about it, Here's why Abraham's faith is where it is now. God has done great things for him. So you might wonder, why, why was he still doubting in those 25 years? Because the things God did, as great as they were, were nothing like the birth of Isaac. Abraham's a 100-year-old man. Sarah's a 90-year-old woman at this point. God had to miraculously revive her womb and her ovaries. He had to miraculously revive Abraham's 100-year-old loins. Okay, And then the boy had to go full term, be born, and then survive a couple years and be weaned. Once all of that happens, God knows, or Abraham knows, that God keeps his promises. Why? Because everything else that happened in Abraham's life to this point isn't impossible. But this was impossible. A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a baby and her being able to nurse that baby, that's impossible. Absolutely impossible. And yet God did it. Once Abraham saw that, that's it. That's it. Okay, he had now grown to such a point that he is convinced that God can't break a promise. He's like, I don't need to see anymore. Once I saw that, it all makes sense to me. And that's where his faith was at. 
And, and you also have to remember, when God made the covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, God knocked him out. And God went through the pieces of the animals by himself to say, this covenant depends on me and me alone. Yeah, you're going to have to wait. I'm going to make you wait a long time. But I will come through for you. And then a few years, not a few years, multiple years later in chapter 17, he then finally says, hey, you're going to have this kid next year. And Abraham's still skeptical, but then a year later comes baby Isaac. And that's it. Abraham's like, God can't break a promise. He always comes through. So Abraham is at a point in his walk with God that his belief in the promises now gives him the power to do things by faith that seem impossible to the average person. And yet that's the point. That's the point. Let me ask a couple questions. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? I mean, do you really believe it? Do you believe that God is all good and only does what is good? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that it is impossible for God to lie? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that God must do every single thing he's promised? And again, I ask, do you really believe it? And the reason I keep asking twice, well, you'll see. Do you, if, you, if your answer is yes to all these questions, then you would do what Abraham did here. If you really believe that God can't lie, that he's all good, that he's all powerful, and that he must do everything he promised, then if God told you to do what Abraham did, if you really believe those things about God, you would do it. The only reason you wouldn't do those things is because you don't really or fully believe these. That's just facts. But here's the thing. Years earlier, neither did Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but he didn't believe at this level yet. Okay? He did not believe at this level yet. That's why he wavered as many times as he did. But when you get to the point where you really, 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 really believe this, because we grow into that, right? Intellectually, we know those things are true, but we have a hard time trusting. But when you grow to the point where now I really trust, man, then no matter how hard the tests are, you're just able to do it. And, and, and that's progressive sanctification. That, that's where we all want to end up. See, with each test with Abraham, there came growth. With each test, there came greater trust and closeness with God. But then the test kept getting harder. And even when he failed, Abraham learned from it. And then he did better with the next test. God used those years of waiting to cause a slow growth. And then God gives him the big fulfillment. Here's Isaac. Fulfilled the promise. And you would think that would end the story. What test could possibly come now that could shake Abraham? He's received the promise. Well, what test? This one. It's this test. God is saying, I've given you the promise, now kill the promise. That's the test. In other words, when God actually fulfilled the promise, it opened the door for tests way harder than the ones before the fulfillment. So, if you think, if you ever say, God, I'll be happy and I'll have a really strong faith. In fact, I'll never waver if you give me X, Y, and Z. But until I see that, it's just so hard. But if you give me this, God, you know, my faith will be, blah. really? Listen, once he gives you that thing you want most, it now makes it to where he could use that to test you. And if you want that thing most, that test is a lot harder than anything you had before you got that thing, right? So what does Abraham want most? This promise. And once he gets this promise, then comes the biggest test. So let's not deceive ourselves thinking, if only God would do this for me. No, he, he will do those things, but tests will keep coming. You have to grow in your faith is the point. See, Abraham, that, that's, this is how it worked for him. This is how his faith journey worked. Okay? The test is now bigger than anything he ever faced, and it would be the same for us. And so Abraham... He's, he's grown. He's at a point now in his life where he believes it and he's listening carefully. If God says, kill the fulfilled promise, Abraham knows that's not the only thing God has said. Yes, he's told me to burn my son up, but he told me I'm going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. And he said, it's coming through this kid. That's what he said. So God promised this to me. I'm going to do what I have to do. Right? And, and just to show you where God promised that to him, it was the last chapter, Genesis 21, verse 12. says, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave, meaning Ishmael and Hagar. He says, whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through who? Through Isaac. So if God tells him to kill Isaac, he's like, well, my offspring still has to be uh, traced through Isaac. 
So God has to raise him or God's a liar. But God can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. He's perfectly good. And even if I burn my son up, nothing's too hard for God. So the idea here is that once God gives you the big promise, it should, if your faith has been growing, lead to even bigger faith. At that point, it's like, I got no reason to doubt anymore. Eventually, you should get to a point of your life where you are so convinced by the promises of God that you courageously do everything that God commands you to do in the scripture. It is faith leading to works. You can tell somebody's quality of faith by the quality of their works. It's that simple. Weak works mean a weak faith, but robust works flow out of a robust faith. Abraham shows us that. He was declared righteous by God. That's how justification works. He was declared righteous in chapter 15, verse 6, when his faith was still still small. But now, in chapter 22, many years later, we are seeing the proof of what God declared about him. We are now seeing that righteousness in action. And this is essentially what James is telling us. In James chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he says this. He says, you see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So if you think about what James is saying there, yeah, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness a long time before this. But it was the offering up of Isaac that made his faith complete. That's what he says. His faith was now complete. And listen, the word faith doesn't mean just believing facts. That's one of the hard things about translating this word. The word faith means trusting God. Trusting him, believing him, not believing in him, but believing him. If you believe him, you already believe in him. See, Abraham's trust was now at its height in our text tonight. Abraham's obedience here shows us that this whole event's about faith. It's not about works. Instead, it's about how faith leads to these kind of works. It's about that, that it shows us that Abraham, by this point, now had a complete faith in God to where he can pass a test even like this. And as we continue in the text, we are going to see this. It's just absolutely clear. The faith of this man is so impressive. But without even reading ahead, we could just come to that conclusion by what he told his servants. Me and the boy, we'll both be coming back. That really tells you everything you need to know about his faith. But then we're going to see he raises the knife. You know, so he's, he's willing to go through with this because he really believes the promises of his God. So that is amazing faith. The question for us this evening is where are we at with our faith journey with God? If you're a newer believer, I got some advice for you. I mean, if you're newer to the faith, you're at the beginning of this, right? So my exhortation to you is read your Bible daily. But as you do so, start paying attention to the things that God promises to all believers. Not like the specific things he promises to Abraham. Those were for him. But look at the things that God promises to all believers. Maybe start writing them down and review them daily so that you you get them in your head. And as you read through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, start keeping track of every time God keeps a promise. Oh, he made a promise here? Oh, now here he fulfills it. Keep track of that. You want to know why? You'll start to see God's faithful character. Where do you get to know him? In the Bible. You start to learn a lot more about him. You get to know him better this way. And trusting him then will start to get easier and easier. Then what I suggest you do, well, not after, but at the same time, keep a prayer journal, right? Write down the things you pray. And then when God answers those prayers, go back and write, answered right next to it. And then months later, you could go back and look at your prayer journal and you start to see you wrote a lot of answers down there. And you start to see like, wow, he really is with me. Because if we don't do that, we forget. But if you do something like that, you're able to see in the Bible how he's faithful, but even in your own life and your own walk, how he's faithful. Listen, as the years go by, you will face difficult times, real crises. Everybody does. Sometimes those tests will seem too big for you. Sometimes they're going to last a while. They will not be quick. But when you come out on the other side, then what you want to do is look back and see what God was teaching you through it. Because he is. Romans 8.28 makes it clear. He works all things, not some things, all things, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So look for what those good things were. 
Look for those areas of growth. That way you will grow and grow and grow and become increasingly confident that there is a purpose to everything God allows to happen in your life. And the reason that you will get through it is because he has to keep all those promises you wrote. Promises like he will never leave or forsake me and no one could snatch me out of his hand. And he who did not uh, spare his own son, will he not give us all things, right? The more you know these promises, the more they're in your mind, the stronger your faith will be. So it's so important to know those things and cling to them. Now, that's what I say to the new believers. To the longtime believers, that might sound like I gave a lot of work to the new believer. But listen, it's not hard work. It's just stuff that you got to do, but it's not difficult. It only sounds like a lot to someone with a lazy faith. I mean, really, a faith that doesn't want to be inconvenienced by something as inconvenient as intentional Bible reading and intentional prayer. I mean, come on, I know that, that, sounds, that sounds bad when you say it out loud, but that's what it is. That's really what it is. A prayer journal only sounds like drudgery and work to someone that does not regularly pray. But the person that does regularly pray has already come to realize that prayer is their lifeblood. And anytime you give them something that's going to make their prayer stronger, they are very happy. They receive it with joy. See, constantly keeping a Romans chapter 8 verse 28 eye, keeping that eyeball on the difficulties of your life only sounds offensive if your knowledge of God is so small that you don't, it, it makes no sense to you. How could God work something good in my life that I would never do to myself? You're not understanding your God. You are not understanding him. But the more you know him and the more you understand him, then there you go, right? And so I'll put it like this. Someone that, is, someone that stinks at their job and never advances doesn't really have experience. What do I mean by that? Well, if someone works for 20 years at a job, but they're pretty much the same as they were the first year they worked at that job, then they don't have 20 years worth of experience. They have one year worth of experience 20 times. And that's why they're still like they were after one year. Whereas the person that gets better and better and actually has 20 years of experience at their job, they're an expert. You could tell. They just know their stuff, right? Well, it's the same way with the Christian faith. There are some people that accepted the Lord 30 years ago, but they have not walked 30 years with the Lord. They've walked one year with him 30 times. And that is why even now they still have an immature faith. They hardly know their God and the trials of life get them to constant failure and faithlessness. But that cycle could be broken by just looking at what we're seeing in our text. Abraham had moments like that, those fail, failure moments. He had those moments early in his walk, but he grew. Despite the up and down movement and failure, he grew. And eventually he knew his God so well that he could set out and obey a command like the one we read tonight simply because God has to keep his promise. And if, if you really believe that, man, there's nothing you won't do for him. If you really believe it, he knows Isaac's coming home with him. There's no way, honestly, that the Abraham of chapter 12 would be doing what we're seeing the Abraham of chapter 22 do. But that's the point. It's growth. It is showing us growth over time of a man who walks with God. It's important that we learn from this. Listen, if you are in the word regularly and you even do half of what I recommended to the new believer, then you're going to have consistent growth. If you do everything I recommended, you're going to have great growth. But even half will get you consistent growth, right? This is what we're called to do. We need that growth. If the version of me in my 20s when I first met Carlos back there, if you were to take that me who still had a little more hair and you were to put him in these pews and he was hearing what I was saying today, that me could conceptually understand all of this. Like, yeah, I get it. We grow, you know, and this is, this is what we have to do. Conceptually, I would get it. But experientially, no. I hadn't experienced anything yet. But now that I'm in my mid-40s, enough has happened in my life to where not only conceptually do I get it and believe it, but I can tell you by experience, I believe it as well. This is just true. It's real. I mean, it takes a little time of, you have to live a couple decades as a Christian and you start to see this. I've had jobs that I've loved, but there was one year I had a job that I hated so much that I was depressed every day and that's why I signed the army. I remember saying to my wife, I would rather get killed in warfare than have to keep doing this. You know, I'd rather jump out of a plane and it blows up and my parachute doesn't open than me having to keep doing this. That's how bad that job was. But you know what? God got me through it. 
I've had major injuries in my life, resulting in two knee surgeries. I have a torn meniscus as I'm standing right now. But I can still move around. I got two bulging discs in my back. But did you know that I'm in better shape cardiovascularly than I've ever been in my life? And I'm stronger than I was at any point in my life, yet I got all these injuries? The point is, God still works through these things. Me and my wife, we've had two miscarriages. They devastate. But you know what? I know I have two more kids in heaven waiting for me, and there will come a day where I'll have a reunion with them, and I'll never lose them again, never have to say bye to them. They're waiting for me. These two little Jews just up there waiting for me, you know, and, and, and I look forward to that. And, and Rachel and Hadessa have siblings up there waiting for them. You know, I, I even think about, you know, the, the mistakes I've made, like Abraham. I lived very selfishly for many years in my marriage. I've hurt my wife a lot, and she's hurt me sometimes as well. But I love her, and neither of us are going anywhere. We're in this for the long haul, and it just grows and grows and grows. Now, I'm going to get to my biggest test because I think that um, I think it's a good illustration for what we're talking about. My biggest test has to deal with this church, okay? And so I gave myself to this church when we planted it in 2010 in a way that was borderline, probably not borderline, but sinful. And what I mean is for seven years, I worked full-time as a high school teacher, I was an army reservist, and I was putting in full-time hours as a pastor. I was preaching most of the sermons, uh, twice a month, sometimes more than that. Um, And I did all of this while I was going to seminary because I wanted to give both God and the church my best. And I was doing all that while I was pursuing my biblical counseling certification as well. Seven years working full-time as a teacher, being in the army, working full-time here, going to school, working on all these certifications. I had one day off per month, one Saturday per month for seven years of my life. That is what I put in to this church, okay? Now, where am I going with this? The time came, what I wanted more than anything was to be a full-time pastor at Sovereign Way Christian Church. That's what I'd been asking for. Oh, Lord, when you give me that, and it happened. I was willing to take a pay cut, you know, and without even like thinking about it, I'm like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. People clapped for me, shook my hand, said, we're so glad you're finally coming on board. This is what we've been waiting for. And before even my first day, because I took like a month off for the summer, half of it I had army training. But anyway, I come back, 70 people left for no discernible reason. 70 when we count the whole families, kids, and all that, 70 of them. Okay, I walked away from my job for these people. 70 left. They did not give a rip. You know how bad that hurts? And I couldn't get my job back. You know that these guys didn't even care that I might lose my house. I had a stable job. They're the ones who asked me to come on. And then they left. I have never been betrayed like that in my life. Never. That pain, it hurt. It hurt. And then as we're trying to keep the church afloat, wolves start trying to tear us up from the inside. There was a couple of them. And then the landlord decides he's going to kick us out, either kick us out or make us pay way more than we could ever afford because he did that because he really wanted to kick us out. Man, and I'm just doing everything I learned in seminary. I'm trying to be faithful, but the test just kept getting harder and it lasted almost two years, between a year and a half and two years. It just was not getting any easier. But here's the thing. God got me through it. This was the single biggest test I ever faced. I got a lot of gray chest hairs from it. Um, I don't think there's any way I could have passed this test in 2012, five years earlier. I was dealing with a different test then, right? But, But the point is, if you're growing in the word and you're growing in your walk, then your faith grows and your ability to endure tests increases. Even the harder tests that come after start to feel not so hard. And then you start thinking about those miracle moments. Like in Abraham's case, it was, it was the birth of Isaac. That was the miracle moment that finally settled it for him in his heart and his mind. And when you get that moment, then it empowers you for the future tests you're going to face. See, after Isaac was born, Abraham was going to respond faithfully to anything and everything that came his way. For me, my... Isaac moment, if you will, was when we got this building. And that might not sound like much to everybody, but you don't know what was going on. Remember, we were getting kicked out of the other place. I'd spent months trying to find some place to rent that we could afford. And everything, every door was being slammed in my face. And at the point where I'm about to give up, 
you know, we're, we're having a Sunday morning worship service at the old building. Two people just happened to show up. They were from the church that used to be in this building that just closed down. And they hear that we're looking for a building. Albert came with them. And then they came and said, hey, you might be able to buy our old building. Here's the phone number of the denominational headquarters that, that own it. So I'm like, sweet, here's a chance. So I call them up. It's Providence, right? Call them up, start negotiating, and then they slam the door on me. They say, listen, we're not even going to waste time with you unless you could get, uh, um, what are they called, an approval letter from a lender. You know, they're like, otherwise you're wasting our time. I'm like, all right. So I start calling banks. They're like, no. No, no. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, because banks don't like to give to churches. So I was defeated. I was deflated. Again, what can I do? I suck. Everything I do turns to mush is what it felt like for that whole year and a half. Well, there was a a Southern Baptist chaplain training that I had to go to to maintain my endorsement to be able to serve the army. So I was down in... uh, where was it? Santa Ana in a hotel. And so we're there. I'm defeated. I'm deflated. I'm like, well, at least I'm getting paid to be here. And hey, I got a little, you know, hydro flask. <laughs> that was the only thing I was able to hold on to from that. And so we're sitting in the circle, you know, giving our prayer requests. And I bring up the situation with the building. This older gentleman that's sitting there, he said, you know what? Hold on a minute. I'm best friends with the president of the California Baptist Foundation, which is our state denomination lending institution. He's like, I bet I could get you that loan and that pre-approval letter. I'm like, really? He gets on the phone with this guy. Five minutes later, I'm on the phone with this guy. Ten minutes later, we're pre-approved, and then I'm back on the phone with the Wesleyans negotiating for this church. And then I haggled them down to a really good price. I wouldn't be a good Hebrew if I couldn't, but got them down to that good price. But then there's one more obstacle. He's like, all right. Now we're there, but you have to have a $100,000 down payment. I'm like, where are we going to get $100,000? Our tithing dropped to the point where we could barely pay our bills. And so I'm like, these people don't have a hundred grand. He's like, you got to ask them anyway. Just have a special meeting, ask your people. And I'm like, Harold, it's not going to work. He's like, do not limit God. I'm like, all right. So we had a special meeting the next Sunday. Within 11 minutes, we raised $100,000. Some of you remember that. You were here for that. And it was just like, what? That was my Isaac moment. And then to, to, to make it even worse in a good way, meaning by that I mean better. You know, I, I read three chapters a day. And the next morning, I happened to be on Psalm 126. And this is what I read. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. And, you know, I get choked up over that because that's the first time in my life where I knew God was talking directly to me, letting me know it was all going to be okay. He was behind this all. The test, the hurt, the, the pushing us to the 11th hour, the pushing me to the end of myself, and then he restored our fortunes. And I was like one who dreamed. I'm still like one who dreams. That was my birth of Isaac moment. Listen, a lot of hard things have come up after that. There's been one thing that's been really hard that came up after that. But I have since then so believed in God's goodness and his promises that my default now is, well, what can God not do? He can do anything. He's got this. If, if he chooses not to do what I think he needs to do, well, oh, well, he knows better than I do. His ways are high above my ways. So I'm okay with what happens because at the end of the day, I know that I know him. I know that I'm saved. And, and so it, it doesn't matter what God is going to do. God's going to do, you know, and, and, and how did I get to that point? He allowed my heart to be broken and ripped to pieces for a year and a half, and then he nursed it. He nursed it back to health. So when the next big crisis came, and it was, it was pretty big, I didn't panic. Instead, I said, God, I, I know you're going to handle this. I'm just going to wait. Now, if that crisis would have happened maybe five years before that, I don't know how I would have handled it. But honestly, I'm like, yeah, I got mad sometimes, but I'm like, I could wait. He's got this. And he solved that one as well. And so, look, I, I bring that up not in any type of boastful way. It's to, it's to show you that what God is showing us with Abraham in this text will happen to us if we're just growing in him. But it doesn't come easy. Eventually, you get the thing that kicks your butt, that chews you up and spits you out. But if you stick with him and you wait for that Isaac birth of Isaac moment, then whatever comes after that, you're okay with. And that's what I'm getting at here. 
It, it, that, that is what I'm getting at here. So if you grow this way, you'll get that mo- to that moment, and your walk with God will get you to a place that you previously could not imagine. You will be able to endure greater tests, and they won't even feel as hard as the earlier test. They'll still hurt. They'll still be hard, but you just get to a point of confidence. Abraham was at that point. Well, you could probably tell that I've only got through verse 5. We have... 14 more to go. Um, So if you guys don't mind staying for another hour, just kidding. I'm going to stop. I'm stopping halfway through the second part of the sequence. There's still a lot more of Abraham obeying God, but I'm going to stop. I think we've seen enough to show us what a solid and growing faith looks like. We've seen that, that the faith that saves is the faith that obeys, and God, and that faith is blessed by God. So we've only got part of the way through Abraham obeying. Next time we'll jump back in and then uh, I will close with an, uh, so what I'll do now then for believers, just everything I just exhorted you, do it. And then for unbelievers, if there's anybody here that does not know the Lord, listen, turn from your sins and repent. He is good to us. He is so good to us. And remember everything I said about the third day. It was all there to point to Jesus. Why did he die and come back on the third day? Because we are sinners that need a savior. And so he traded places with us and paid the penalty of our sins. Our sins earned hell, but he died on that cross to take the penalty. That way, when you turn from your sins and believe on him, you're forgiven of everything and you'll never have to go to hell. And then he was rose from the dead on the third day and he lives to give you the credit of his righteousness. He lives to pour out the Holy Spirit of God upon you to give you that new heart to change you so that you could then start growing in these ways I'm talking about, but even more importantly, to have eternal life one day. And so don't walk out of here still in your sins. Repent and believe on the Lord and you will be saved. We're going to pray and then we're going to partake of communion and then uh, we'll be dismissed. So let's go to the Lord. God, we just thank you so much for your word.